0: Um, you know, this last winter was a cracker one where we went from a drought one day and, and into a flood the next. So the whole farm soaked, soaked up so much water and uh, coped with that wet, wet winter. Neighbours and people next door, they were ploughing paddocks to try and dry them out. Whereas we just trucked on and then once things yeah, once we finished the paddocks, we were just coming up the dr- drill straight away and away uh, we went. So.
1: Hello and welcome along to the Corum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew, and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative, and enjoyable farming systems.
0: going to kick it off uh, slightly different because uh, we're having a few changes coming up, and that's. Uh my time to sort of step aside out of out of the podcast. So not to say I won't be back at some point, but um, welcome along, Jono. To...
1: We thought, you know, what better way to say thanks to Duncan and acknowledge him for his work with the podcast, but also to, you know, bring a, an element that we've not discussed on the podcast before, which is, is dear. So, um, Duncan, why don't you, I mean, the audience really know who you are. But a lot of the you know audience probably doesn't know really what you do and and a bit about your background. So why don't you start with a yeah. bit, of, bit of a deeper dive into who's Duncan and what does he get up
0: to? Um so we have farmed, um, our family's been at Mount Summers since 1963, I think it is. Uh, my grandparents bought the place. Fast forward a few years, I come along and um, early mid 90s, i sort of read a lot of you know hunting books and a lot of our neighbours down our road had deer already, and we didn't. And so I'd go, you know, every day I'd go to school on school bus past these deer farms and saw these cool animals. And I um, probably what really got me about deer was the whole story, provenance of the deer industry itself, um, with our helicopter hunting and the early days of wild venison recovery being so effective that all of a sudden we ran out of deer, so we had to start farming them to keep these markets going with um, beautiful venison. So uh, that's, in a very small nutshell, what caught me about deer. So
1: Something. before deer farming really became a thing, is that, was that really started because of, of the commercial deer culling or retrieving yeah. sort of running out of it? Was that...
0: I always tell people it's the greatest, greatest conservation story ever told in, in the world, I think. In my view, so uh, what started as a disaster of uh, wild deer being introduced to New Zealand, which fundamentally shouldn't have happened, um, to them almost, you know, ecosystem was almost on the point of collapse, and uh, it wasn't for helicopters and airplanes and. Yeah, I'd hate to think what our bush would look like now. So,
1: now yeah, well, Barry Crump books are coming to mind now, yes. on stories. Yeah, that too. Yeah, keeping tales. And you talked granddad into getting some deer. Um, granddad had long since
0: retired. And mm-hmm. then um, by the time I was in my early teens, you know, reading these books started pestering my father to, you know, we should be, you know, getting into some deer. And then just we're quite lucky that, you know, dad, mum and dad worked really hard to make it happen. Was uh, a block of land come up. Uh, just a small block next door come up for sale and at the time we'd had something like 2,000, well it's 2,500 breeding years at the time and sheep wasn't that flash, early 90s and so dad was kind of well I've already got this many sheep money's not that brilliant we've got to kind of think about something else to diversify the operation and yeah two and a half sheep was 2,500 too many almost and uh yeah, so luckily he listened and thought, right, how can we make something else work? And then when he worked out some numbers, uh, finishing beer was, um, yeah, the best thing we could have done with that block to buy it to get across the line with the bank. And actually the, the first bank, or well, the bank we were with at the time, actually, because numbers were tight, uh, first bank actually turned, turned Dad down. And so he was pretty gutted, but he didn't give up and uh went to another bank and yeah, they as long as we took our business with them um yeah they gave us the money and we bought the place and converted it um did it all ourselves fenced it all ourselves um which you know, i don't know how dad spent the time with you know he already had enough on his plate as it was but he, he sort of had to fence um fence as quickly as we could to because we bought some deer pretty much before we had fencing up <laughs> And uh, so they they were coming on a day. And I think we had a second, the second paddock was finished the day that the first lot of deer turned up and got dropped in the paddock. And we didn't have yards at that stage either. So we, uh, yeah, just just remember like after school, weekends, holidays, we were just helping dad fence. And he was hard out all day and all night sort of thing, fencing that block up. And that was our start. And, uh, you know, we knew nothing. Nothing about deer. Nothing about how to handle them. How to set up paddocks and races, and especially the shed. That was a real hard one. Um, but yeah, we got some good advice. Our neighbours are real awesome, helping us out. And got the shed designed, and it actually to this day works really well for what it is. And uh,
1: what are some of the points you got to think about with deer regarding you know handling, moving them around, and especially with yarding and putting them through races.
0: I think it definitely um, you've probably got to have a higher than average, I think, stock sense and stock handling ability. And you've sort of got to know when you can push and when you've got to pull back. And it's a real test of sometimes can be a real test of your patience. And um, you've really got to be reading reading the animals and observing what, you know, trying to guess what it is they're thinking. And I think that's kind of the key to being a good deer farmer. is yeah, being able to read your stock and i think that probably yeah that comes across you know crosses over into you know a good man with sheep or cattle um, or dairy and dairy cares um, yeah good good stock people are uh, a big difference and yeah so people who probably haven't enjoyed deer maybe not may not lack that little bit of extra they need for to handle them and whatnot so yeah it's a, not so I get it right all the time but uh, yeah yeah that's. Definitely a challenge. Uh, and I think, you know, for me personally, it's a challenge that, you know, generally even if you're not a good stockman, you can get a mob of sheep in the yards and drench them or um, but with deer, you, you, you sort of got to, if you don't get it right, you'll get punished. Yeah. So yeah, I think you've really got to be, yeah, sort of a higher operator at a slightly higher level to um to make a good go of it. Or, you know, they can like it's almost like they can read the body language of the bike as you're coming down the lane to get it yeah. So
1: when you did the transition, did the, 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 the ewes, did they the majority of them stay or was it like a straight transition out of sheep into deer?
0: Uh, so no, we, we kept the sheep. Um, we only fenced up what was that block that we bought next door. So we only started off with, I think we bought 100 wieners the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so we still had the sheep enterprise, which um, pretty much almost ran kind of separate to the deer block um, just because we didn't have the elbow room. In the, in the deer block so and um, you know, it was down one end of the farm as well so we just um, kind of kept the deer as the deer block and you know, we would bring in sheep um you know if we had a bit of a surface of feed or something like that or we needed to tidy some paddocks up we'd bring more be using in or something but yeah just generally speaking we kept the deer to themselves it was quite so sort of, yeah still to the stable remember the first time we yarded deer yeah it was it was kind of yeah, very different so it was a b- baptism before we didn't know what the heck we were doing. We hadn't even been to another deer farm, and you know, sort of, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, sort of thing. And we just came to crap. You and your old man both learning yep. as you go. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get run over, and you know, deer didn't turn around and come back over and pile over us or anything like that. So we got one in the yards, and no, no one got hurt, and uh, everyone was kind of happy once we got them settled down. We figured it figured out the flow of the shed, and yep. uh, yeah, it was yeah, quite a cool experience.
1: How would you have been at that age? What age? I would
0: have been probably 14, wow. 14, or 15, I think, when we first got into
1: it. So. And the, the the nostalgia stayed, like you'd get a fascination over deer through, you know, your interactions with the books you read and yeah. the way they were in nature. And then you got them in the yard and it's this process of like, working out how to farm these guys and you know work alongside them yes it it never wore off you 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 continued your passion still I think it plays a big part and
0: you know sort of leads into the whole regenerative thing too in a way that um yeah I was just every day I would just sit and look out of the bus and in the paddock at the neighbours and then once we got home I just spent hours up there just sitting in the paddock with them and studying them and Figuring, figuring them out. Mm-hmm. It was, I think that's probably led on to the way I see the world now and you know, I do spend a lot of time when I'm down the farm hanging out with the pet ones. or uh, Yeah, so I think that uh, leads a, and has led into a lot of like, the observational stuff that you can't get when you're a million miles an hour and not stopping to smell the roses. Yeah, so I think that I don't know what it, what it was, but that's just the way I'm wired. I've just always loved it.
1: So, pretty important with generation number four, it be?
0: Yeah, Ruby. Yeah, I know number what five it? of our family. On the farm?
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I've seen photos of her out there with you helping out <laughs> on the farm, patting the pet ones.
0: Yes, yeah. She's um, yeah, quite handy around the place. Whipping just, around on a motorbike, yeah. Her old man. Yeah, I had her. Um, yeah, she's quite handy if you've got to roll up an electric fence or something. She can hold a mob. Quietly down one end of the paddock while you wind a fence up, and um, she does get a wee wee bit freaked out because actually her bike's only a wee fifty. So,
1: and can you get to a point with deer, don't wear Like you, you fully trust the animals, or is it always still because they are huge? You know,
0: yeah, you've always got to be a little bit. uh, Generally, with the whole mob, you've just got to read them. Like at the moment, like the other day, um, yeah, pet stag. uh, He's um, we sort of had our last sort of cuddle. Before the raw sort of thing, we to get it bristle up a bit and starting to get that sort of pre rut sort of look about them. So we Come don't, I won't, I won't go anywhere near them uh, in a paddock with them during the raw, just through the fence only sort of thing. Yeah. And then there's other other deer, you just get to know them because um, I'm the only one that handles our, our ones. Um, you kind of get to know what they're all like. Yeah. And we don't, know if there's anything that's too unpredictable or You know, we can't fully trust. We we don't keep them because we just can't afford to um, be beaten up.
1: You you said you are finishing animals. Is that primarily your business now? Finishing, or do you have some?
0: It's still um, yeah venison. Although we we changed uh, early on, we just we just bought weaners in uh, from one of our neighbors, and then just finished just while we're finding our feet with it, and then eventually. I uh, started buying in a few uh, yearling hinds and started building up a bit of a breeding herd from there. So, yeah. So the yeah so venison's still you know the bulk of it probably ninety percent or eighty or not ninety percent of their animals on the farm was breeding and finishing animals. Mm-hmm. So uh, for venison because we kind of I've always really enjoyed the venison because like when you sit down to a nice piece of venison. That's really just an experience and so that it always comes back from, you know, what it's like to actually eat these animals right back to what it's like to start making them. Uh, so uh, yes, yeah, so I always just enjoyed that process of producing good venison and then trying to push our system along so that we're you know, always improving our genetics, quite enjoy that side of it uh, on the venison. Um, so yeah, that's kind of our, you know, what spins our wheels the most. So yeah. that's kind of our main focus. And then, yeah, we're still, uh, these days with. Uh, got velvet as well. So, yeah, we, we, for a while we were breeding velvet replacement animals, but we sort of got out of that and just focusing on just the velvet side and now. Just, just had to simplify our lives a bit.
1: So. And with the breeding, do you do artificial insemination or is it?
0: Well, since my wife Lorna is a vet, you'd think it would be a yeah, that would be the golden opportunity, but because we're so busy with our professional lives yeah. and everything else we got going on, we haven't actually got to the point yet where we're like we can actually make a real good, solid go of uh, either AI or um, ET type breeding. So we're still pretty, um, yeah, still doing it pretty naturally and uh, just picking good stags um, and yeah, doing it that way. So um, so we're pretty happy we're at if we ever hit that a ceiling where we just can't go any further then we'll definitely start looking that's just quite kind of lucky that um like our paddock sizes and our mob size and everything are quite conducive to um that's one thing that people a few people have said to us we're a bit crazy for doing but we do a lot of single sire mating touchwood hasn't bitten us yet but we you know we're pretty confident in doing that so we you know we'll buy good stags and put them over specific you know elite hinds and uh breed up that way so we've just yeah always got our mind on and that's the way yeah well once we've top that out then we might look at other things.
1: What would you say is important for you know let's look at differently what what are some of the challenges that you see in raising and rearing good you know quality um venison and 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 breeding stock
0: I think it all comes back to diversity like Mm um back in where like mostly all grass It was always a challenge to keep deer happy. And if they're unhappy with what they're eating, they let you know because they'll start pacing fence lines. And there's a lot of this observational stuff. You can just tell that they're not happy with a crop, you know, particularly in winter. If they're just on a monoculture crop in the winter, they get to a point in the winter where they just, we're done with this paddock and take it somewhere else, please. And they'll be, you know, they'll be running, pacing fence lines, just generally unhappy, or um, they'll still kind of. You know, they'll still eat it if they have to, but you can just tell um, that they're not, not into it. So a big part, you know, years ago, um, you know, we started starting to look at what it was they were eating in the paddocks and, you know, like um, I started noticing we have, you know, because the deer are browsing animals, so they don't like but not nature itself. Nature hates one um, and deer are just the same way. Yeah, they just thrive on diversity. So it'll be like some deer, you know, some deer they'll eat one thing, and then these ones over here are eating that, and, they, and then the other day, next day they'll be the other way around. And I know I know people that have had like three or four paddocks of monocrop. You know, it might be a paddock of lucerne, a paddock of clover, a paddock of grass, and then they just opened all the gates up and had it as one to try and see which plant the deer preferred more. You know one day they're in the lucerne, and then the next day they're in the grass, and then the day after that, they're back in the clover. And then that was like fine day, cloudy day, wow. sunny and then the guys go like, oh, right. So, on a sunny day, they like that, and on a cloudy day, they like that. And then you're starting to get a bit of a pattern. And then just when you thought he's you know, get to a bit of a pattern of what they wanted on a certain day, they'd just do the opposite. Yeah, when you, when when you, when all those plants are in the pack together, then they're kind of happy. And whatever paddock you put them in, whether you put them in next door to a paddock of lucerne or something, they'll be wanting to get into the lucerne. And yeah, so it's just, yeah, diversity is just the nutshell. And I guess, yeah, to back up the truck, just slightly, you know, when we started, what we kind of used to in the early days, you know, I was thinking that just old permanent pasture with good clover content was where it was at and didn't really like a lot of the modern rye grasses because they weren't, we are struggling to get them to persist. And so we were spending all this money on flash grass that just, was gone the kind of sort of thing so we um but eventually we tripped over um a ryegrass grass that we liked and then i started adding in you know stuff like you know the basic stuff like chicory and plantains and, and more you know, different species of clover and you know, that might be you know sort of up around that eight, eight to ten species and that was like pretty out there you know seed companies and that they'll say oh well you, you know your, um, your chicory and your red clover that'll be gone in a couple of years but then you know, you get to that five-year mark down the track and you have them out, you know, well, there's still chicory there mm-hmm. and there's still red clover still coming. And then the, the ryegrass that we like is only supposed to be a re, you know short to medium rotation sort of, not a long, persistent grass, but we've had it persist. And just, I think that's a bit of a management thing as well, just being able to, you know, with the right grazing techniques at the right times, we've managed to make it last longer than what's said on the bag, so it's... Uh, it's been a big key to it, and then that was kind of our go to pasture mix for a while. And then, but now, yeah, since meeting people like you and other people in the quorum sense thing and looking at more, diver- even more diversity, and that pushing the limits of what we thought was possible. Um, yeah, that's where we've started to push out the boat. Yeah, it's quite exciting, and I think leading to you know trying crazy stuff, it's not that crazy, but um, I think that all just comes back to the sort of people that have sort of stuck with deer over the years because mm. it's quite an innovative industry. Um, I think that innovation's always kind of been there and people are prepared to try more stuff. It is, you know, I would say the whole, particularly the grazing side of re- regen, whatever you want to call it, is quite hard. Mm. Like it is a real hard one to manage. It's like one of the limiting factors. As much as it is an advantage, we are slightly disadvantaged at times with deer trying trying to get mob sizes and things like that so um, just how we manage at certain times will be slightly different but uh, and
1: what are some of the like changes you've noticed um, over the years as you've started to incorporate more of these techniques
0: the um, probably the biggest thing is like grazing management to try and cope with uh, dry spells so you know the summer we can go dry you know, from a wet spot to a dry spot pretty quickly. So I guess a lot of the grazing management was all around geared around how can we set the farm up to cope for the best when it does go dry. Um, and then a lot of that tracks back to how you manage stuff on the you know, grass in the autumn, young grass in the autumn particularly, how we manage that. And then, um, yeah, having a lot of discipline to stay out of paddocks in the winter if we have to if i had to sit down and write out a formal how i do my grazing and everything it would be i don't think i could do that Mm -hmm. yeah because you've just always got to be watching the weather watching how things are growing and then modifying your plan to cope so it's always just trying to create this backstop of if it does grow dry we've got sufficient covers ahead of us that are gonna you know so things are going to keep growing for as long as possible and then when we come out of that dry patch as well minimizing the damage so that things recover real fast when you come out of that dry patch. So instead of a a big long window of dry and nothing, you're shifting those shoulders, squeezing it up tighter so that your period where you're not growing anything is just minimize it as much as you can. So um, so it just sort of makes makes sure you can bounce forward, you know, what what we used to do sort of pretty conventionally, you know, you'd sort of have a whole farm full of ryegrass and then you'd be trying to keep your, you know, keep a pretty standard cover and all of a sudden it would go dry and then then you'd have nothing. And then it would go brown and things would die and back yourself into a corner. So I think you're yeah, having a good balance of the farm where yep, you do have some stuff where you're really chasing quality. And then uh, you're just having a balance, yeah, riding that balancing act of judging where you think the weather's going to go, setting up to make the best of whatever gets thrown at us.
1: And I imagine with that too, like not only you're shortening that window where you're not growing anything, but when it does, when you do get those autumn range, you're able to recover a lot faster. Yes. Yeah. You're noticing that as well, don't you? Yeah, we? yeah,
0: definitely. Yep. Yeah, like definitely. And with it, like a winter grazing management, it was almost a given as soon as you finished your winter feed, you had to plow the pair to fix it. That was always a, you know, got muddy and it was just you know, accepted that as yep. but now, yeah, like the last three years we've direct drilled uh winter to feed paddocks out of, ex- out of winter, been pretty diligent on managing yeah, managing uh, winter, even when it gets wet and snowy. Uh, you know, this last winter was a cracker one, where we went from a drought one day and, and into a flood the next. So um, yeah, we, the whole farm soaked, soaked up so much water and uh, coped with that wet, wet winter. And it was a long winter too, so that really coped. Even those paddocks that we had winter crop, this horrendous winter, we Still, direct drilled those, um, didn't need to cultivate at all. Yeah, so it was uh, neighbors and people next door, they were ploughing paddocks to try and drive them out. Whereas we just trucked on, and then once things, yeah, once we finished the paddocks, we were just coming up the direct drill straight away and away uh, we went.
1: So, and you're getting results like that, like this year, you've got a
0: we're still kind of finding our feet with how, sort of because we are evolving the system, we used to grow just like a, a 1, 10 15% of the farm was kind of like a kale, you know, one paddock would be kale and then one paddock would be swedes or something like that. So, and then planted, you know, October, November time, and, you know, if we did beet, it was October planted, but now we've shifted to not planting winter crop until early summer. And so that means the paddocks that are going to winter crop uh, staying in pasture for longer uh, and so that means you when you're adding up your total yield you've got more more of the farm production. you've got that paddock producing grass um, right through the peak of spring when it's still really going, going for it so yeah. you get quite a lot of grass yield because you're taking it out much later and then yeah once we come out of winter feed uh, well, i've actually got yeah, one one paddock i'm kind of keeping it's just like going to be continuous multi-species crop, mm-hmm. and then I'm running that as a bit of a trial with two conventional ryegrass paddocks either side of it, so uh, that paddock's just going to be continuous, just crop, 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 yep. um, and we'll just see what the difference is over time. There's a little bit of a fine-tuning there, like some paddocks are staying in longer in crop before they go back to sort of what we'd call a permanent pasture, so. And is it
1: like, is there an intention behind
0: that, or is it? I'm is it... Oh, kind of making it up as it go along, really, just just figuring it out as we go and yeah. just just letting kind of that's kind of where we got to originally was it was just everything's everything's an evolution as i see, like with our genetics it's all an evolution Our grazing management that's been an evolution the fertilizers been just an evolution and so um this is just a i haven't got a hard and fast or i'm going to do this in this paddock i'm going to do x amount of hectares i'm just kind of yeah we're finding our feet with it as we go and then learn you know Do one thing, study it, and then, yeah, it's kind of like an experiment, followed by an experiment, followed by an
1: experiment. Like true adaptive fluid, you know, like what people like Siobhan Griffin talk about is, you know, you've got to be monitoring, evaluating, and assessing, and then making adaptations to suit your observations.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I've been to a field day, actually, but pretty much a, a big group, you know, an area where they just go around everyone's farms, I mean, quarterly or something like that. It was real eye-opening to me. And I was really, I was quite aware of just how stressed and anxious, you know, the, we'd go to a paddock and it was like a multi-species crop or something and, got the, you know, these couple of guys are oh, well, what's the intention with this paddock? <laughs> like, what's the time frame? Yeah. What, what was your drilling day? Yeah. Just how different, in a way, these worlds are. And right mm-hmm. now, you know, probably before around about the time the quorum Sense thing sparked up, I was probably kind of feeling a bit burned out with farming, mm-hmm. and I uh, just, you know, it's pressure of you know, you know how much stuff we've got going on all the time. I was feeling pretty burned out by oh, all, yeah. and um, particularly, you know, I used to be like really fastidious with record keeping and you know, weigh you know, calendar weighing and um, a lot of that sort of stuff. We still do a lot of that, but I'm pretty relaxed on what that. You know, I'm not going to judge all all my decisions based on how something a mob's gone over the scales uh, like I used to. So yeah, I love this. It's just so much less stressful. We've still got to worry about the weather, we've still got to worry about markets. All that stuff's a worry, but it's just not doesn't get on top of you like it used to. So and you're, you're not worrying about, you know, the next calendar day, whatever. So it's, you know, just having us confidence to just keep just observing yeah. and just judging, making call, and then keep going forward. Um, it's yeah, it's kept, kept us farming, really, so, you know, like the figures and the, you know, the weighing and everything. I think that was a really important part of getting to where I am now. You know, we'd do this and then we'd weigh. And so it was very measured outcome. You know, you'd do a thing, weigh it, see what the outcome was on the scales, and then you'd file that in the memory bank. So that, you know, I could. I wouldn't say to anyone now, you know, if you're a younger person, mm-hmm. just starting a really important thing to do to, to, to um, validate what you're seeing and calibrate yourself. Yeah, so, you know, I, yeah, I definitely would do that all over again if I had the chance because it was so valuable and, you know, the money we spend on the idea gear and the scales, that's just been worth every everything. Now, nowadays, it's, uh, yeah, I feel we've kind of got ourselves pretty valid. It's a bit, probably a bit like, you know, a brux If you're on your farm, all the time, and you're bricksing stuff flat, state on the I've got a bricks meter. And I was bricksing everything, and I was so curious for ages. And then with – but once you've done that for a long time, that is – you know, that's an exhilarating experience. You know, you can see what your animals are doing, see what the bricks is doing. Yeah, eventually you just sort of got to the point i I sort of felt calibrated, so I don't do it as much anymore. Um, I just feel, you know, I'll do, once I've done – one or a few or a series of them over a few weeks or whatever at the start of the season I'll kind of get to know where things are at and I've got confidence that I'll know you know, what the bricks will be doing and uh, yes yeah, so I don't have don't feel I have to do it as much.
1: So one thing that came to mind then is, is, is sort of like my experience was when I first started to tune my eye into dry matter you know you play metering yeah. you're running around with the toe behind yes. you know yeah. tuning in your eye and then once you've tuned your eye in
0: yeah, and yeah, with the, you know, once you've got your experience that, you know, yeah, you can drive down, oh yeah, bit about 2,500 in there, and yeah, you, yeah. Yep, and away you go, so uh, whereas yeah, now, I can't remember the last time I got the old pasture stick out, so yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what
1: about supplement, Dan? What are you doing with supplements?
0: One thing we do pride ourselves on uh, is we've never got reliant on supplements in terms of like palm kernel, because uh, there's a lot of people in the deer industry that have probably built up finishing systems that are quite reliant on supplements, so they'll be like you know, weaning borns early and relying on having, you know, autumn crops and you know, particularly in the springtime lots of supplement as well but sort of did that for a while not with palm kernel but um, we tried a few things and a few different mixes, um, bit of grain you know, the deer do love bit of barley which we do use a bit from time to time um, but we kind of kind of, I don't know whether I subconsciously did it or just decided that I wanted to set a system up so that we weren't uh, we weren't reliant on having a system that we're locked into needing to buy external supplements, you know, like you know, like grains or whatever it is to get our production. So I wanted to, whatever we did, I want to be able to do it just on what's in the pack. I don't want to don't mind like the things that you know the venison price is really good and there's an opportunity because i know barley or you know they'll be able to pick their weight gains up with barley yep sure we'll um, buy a bit of barley and do that but as a rule it's not a it's a nice to have not a need to have yeah so yeah that's kind of where we want to set our, our goals for our business was to not be reliant on external stuff as much as we can so yeah setting up our system so we didn't need it was and you know like a, this this year year's probably the case in point with the low venison price is that if we were locked in and having to buy supplement, yeah that would really make our balance sheet look really terrible mm-hmm. we're buying in those sorts of things just to keep the wheels on and just to hit bare minimum. So it probably was a subconscious decision, not a, not a we aren't gonna do that. And the same with velvet too. Um a lot of velvet guys um yeah, do use a lot of supplement for velvet, but uh, again, I was kind of like, well, hey, it's a time thing, you know, I've got a few things going on, so I don't want to be stuck on having to go feed out every day, and uh, or feed supplements, so um, yeah, velvet, you know, we've got some reasonable genetics of what we're doing, but we feel they're reaching their potential well and truly on on some multi-species, what's growing in the paddock, so, uh, so it's a real balancing act of we still make a lot of silage, um, because, yeah, we can't... In the wintertime, I don't want to be stuck having deer stuck in a paddock because that's where the crop is and mm. they've got to be there in that paddock and mud. Uh, so we've yeah, set up our business so that as soon as it's wet, animals come off their crop and they go to paddocks with high, you know, higher cover, you know, paddocks have been quite rank and, you know, they're the suspension paddock, so we'll feed out silage in there. they have more sheltered paddocks, so they'll be in better shelter and they're on, like, multi-species silage. Which is virtually what's in the paddock that they're eating anyway, so yep. it's not a big adjustment in their diet either. And uh, so then we've got that control, uh, so pr- protecting our soil in the winter time. So yeah, silage is kind of a would be nice to not have that, but I see it as a pretty essential tool. And it's the same too. Like I was saying about shifting our planting date for winter feed. Um, quite often we'll take um, take grass silage off that paddock before it goes into that crop. So then. You've kind of grown you know like a, a swede or f- kale or fodder big type yield in that paddock in that calendar year but you've just got some of it wrapped up in plastic then you don't have to have those animals in there eating it you can you know it's just a bit of a um, balance of being able to shift that feed around instead of eating it in situ yeah and then also we're, we've got we're quite lucky we've got an old uh gallagher silerator. so we Sometimes if I grow kale or a tall crop, I can also go and harvest that crop in the paddock and take it somewhere else. Yeah, that that was like the best six hundred bucks ever spent was buying that machine because we can also also if we've got kale, use it for like cutting the fence lines for the break fence. I have one mob in the paddock behind a wire, and then I can also have another mob that I cut and carry where I'm when I cut the fence lines. I can take that that same crop. To another mob, um, and it just gets us better you know we've got it we get a nice clean track and then we can also take some of that feed instead of having it stuck there we can move it wherever we want to take it so yeah having having that flexibility we're pretty lucky It's not actually like there's no like Yeah, not
1: exactly that's by design so. and speaking of cutting multi-species silage tell us about your roadside because i know it's attracted a, a bit of attention the old, old yeah
0: pack. yeah no the when I mean, it's one of those things that uh, the old perceptions would have you, you know, you've got to mow your own side and keep it tidy. I saw an opportunity to, uh, in a way, just add a bit of safety. Well, there's three kind of three reasons. We've got, it's a long, straight bit of road, so it's real easy to drill, it's easy to spray, and it's easy to cut and carry. Ideal world, like this year, we have planted it. That crop's grown, and the players are just about finished now, and then so I might just terminate that and then direct drill something into it again. Or we can. Like last year we had a you know stinking drought, so I actually needed a bit of extra feed. So once the sunflowers were just about done, I cut and carried that roadside, and you know that was valuable feed um, that we taken into the deer. You, you know, just can't run the deer out onto the road to <laughs> to, to graze it. And then uh, I think it just gives yeah. Also, another reason is like the community side of it. People I've seen like Fonterra tankers stopping and like. Um, you know, big bulk truck and you see these truck drivers get out and they're taking photos of sunflowers um, and then all, you, you know, you bump into people up in the village and they're oh, I love your sunflowers. It's real cool. And, um, you know, I might have we grab a few and that's just a real cool thing. I think for the community, they all seem to enjoy it. We have that added, added insect and, bird, you know, it's good for the birds and, yeah, so I think all in all in every, every which way you look at it, it's, uh it's been a real cool thing to do.
1: Imagine thinking like how much roadside in Canterbury and even around New Zealand like it's yeah. just an unutilised resource. Yes, like it's all about yeah. I don't know some image thing like mowed grass and you know, yes, when we had the floods, if you look at our roadsides, if they are you know mowed to the boards, they're not infiltrating water. You know, they're compacted. Yeah. Whereas something like what you've grown is. Aerating and opening the source, so you've got the mm. water infiltration. Then, you know, it's slowing. the water, if water yeah. was to be flowing through, it'd be slowing it down. Catch, and, catching and catching things, it. Yeah. Like, do you think people just see it as something pretty? Or or, or do you think we have an opportunity to teach people the benefits of such a thing? It's been and...
0: probably the coolest thing was uh, when I had time, I'd see like a car or something stopped. So if I had time, I'd actually go down and see if it wasn't. Um, actually, had some really cool conversations with people that weren't farmers uh or even from did have a couple of conversations with farmers as to why we were doing it mm-hmm. and um yeah I got talking to people an English woman and an Irish woman that had been up and done the local walkway and they would just on their way home and they would seen these photos on Instagram I think um not mine but someone else's and they'd come and found it and then I got talking to them and they're like oh you know why did why did you do this and so I want to but that, you know, just like now, you know, there's like multiple reasons why we're growing. Like, it oh, man, that's cool. And then they asked about our animals and what we're doing on the farm. And so, yeah, it was a, it's a great connector. I was supposed to be crying or something, but yeah. And
1: especially, you know, you're an influencer. <laughs> why don't we talk about some of the other areas of influence that you're involved with?
0: Well, I mean, just to, just on that, areas of influence, we actually got um, some of our sunflowers ended up in Wellington last year. Yeah, Joe uh, Luxton there local MP, she is apparently a Prime Minister loved sunflowers so we had a big mission one night and I, I got some sunflowers to Joe's son who then got one to Joe and then Joe was on carrying them up on a flight up to Wellington the next morning and, and so yeah they were, we took farming to top four of the beehive. How's it for nutrient transfer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Dan, so when we met, like when I met you yeah. You know, you had just discovered Quorum Sense and, and I was actually pretty moved to hear you share that things weren't that great for you, you know, yeah. on the farm. I don't want to say mentally, it's not the right word, but yeah. like, you know, passion was, was wearing off. I didn't know you were someone who's passionate. Yeah. What's it been like sort of coming into Quorum Sense and, you know, you've been a board member. What, what's that, you know, involvement for you yeah. been like?
0: Well, I think like we were in, in there before Quorum Sense even had a name and, yeah, that was just like the first field day, you I went to was just a, almost couldn't go to the day because I was busy doing building the deer shed. I was doing something and I was flat out. It takes
1: you like 30 minutes before I yeah. think it was like, I'm coming.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I said the last time I was like, no, nah, I'm going. And <laughs> to, you know, made that conscious you know, decision where I could have quite easily fobbed it off and not gone. But I mean, I'd already read, you know, like your post on Facebook initially that Nigel had shared. And uh, you know, I really wanted to meet who this, you know, find out who this giant proof was, it seemed pretty cool. And uh, yeah, luckily, you know, like the, the field day that really sticks in my mind is that uh, the one where Jonathan Lundgren, and he, he was just someone who happened to be in the neighbourhood. It wasn't a day for him. That day was just so, take that to the grave sort of thing. That was just an epic day, you know. Galski drove all the way up and, you yeah, know, we had Steve Ratton there and Jonathan and his his posse and yourself and all these other farmers, and they were at Simon's initially and looking at all Simon's crops and mind blowing, and then she ran to Chamberlain's and set us alight. Really, so it was a profound experience. So uh, it was, yeah, seeing what people were doing, that was like a whole nother level beyond what we, or what I could comprehend. And yeah, we're quite, you know, I think we knew quite a lot of pretty out there farmers that were doing some cool stuff already but yeah so just to remind you met you and the way we went podcast has been another big thing that has been was a dream of theirs mm. you know like right from the get-go and to do something like this so um, to see it happen has been pretty cool and then the board's um very much a big personal growth experience as much as it is about giving giving back to this organization that's given me so much mm. so uh, it's um yeah, it's a lot of work and, you know, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that a lot of people don't get to see. But, you know, governance is, is quite hard, but uh, it's been an awesome experience to, you know, help steer this, uh, this ship, this quorum sent.
1: I definitely take my hat off to you, Dan, like just acknowledge the heck out of you for your commitment. You've always been the one that said to travel the furthest, <laughs> or, or were, now there's yes. some further people, but yeah. You know, it's um I know it's not nothing and with what you do with your farming and your family, young, yeah. you know, beautiful family and other, you know, hobbies that you've got, motor riding and things like I yeah. just know what it what it takes and I I just acknowledge the crap out of you, man.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Mm. Yeah. it's uh it's a hectic life, but uh, yeah, it's certainly stimulating. It's a it's yeah. like
1: a microbial relationship. You, you, yeah, you, you do a lot for the plant, but it's it's always yeah, a
0: it is definitely home. You get you get a few I sugars get, I get, 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 get a lot out of it.
1: Yeah, so on that, don't like um, you know, you've you've taken on a hell of a transformation. I've watched you, you know, I've been part of that growth. You know, watching you grow and develop, and watching your farm grow and develop, and your family. And what would you say to someone who perhaps you know, whether they're deer industry or not, hmm. you know, they're, they're finding it, you know, the same old, same old, and they want to try something new and perhaps they're listening to this podcast and I'm thinking, you know, what What would you have to say to that That sort of person?
0: I was actually prepared for this. Dr. William Albrecht has this famous quote about uh, when textbooks, when a textbook and observation don't agree, throw away the textbook. And uh, to me, that means a lot about studying what's actually happening in front of your face and that power of observation and yeah, that curiosity. And I think like kind of what to your point, what you were just saying about what you've noticed in me and I have noticed in myself, how much I've grown just in these last few few years especially. Um, yeah, is having that curiosity to think further and um, more critically and just yeah really just be curious has led us to where we're going. So you know, don't know what the roadmap is specifically, but I'm interested to see where it leads. Yeah. Enjoying the journey, yeah, yeah, definitely. With the yeah, you know, it's going to be cool to see where we go next. And um, yeah, we as an organization, and yeah, just yeah, it does suck that I don't have the time to commit fully with it, but I'm only excited to see. Um, I won't feel like I'm missing out. I'll still be a part. So yeah, but, man, you helped create this. So, mm, so it's yeah, I'm really excited to see where it goes. So. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions, and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only, and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz
1: website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.